welcome to Step Up Nigeria's podcast. My name is Faromi Ioda, and our podcast is an initiative built to create awareness of governance issues that highlight the cost of corruption and its impact on service delivery. It also hopes to promote and encourage the right values that would help to build a society of people with integrity and provide solutions to service delivery challenges faced by everyday Nigerians. So we're assessing the 2023 general elections today and we're looking at the role of CSOs and the media in ensuring electoral integrity in Nigeria. In the 2023 general elections that took place in February and March, INEC recorded um, over 90 million registered voters. Um, and that was, you know, an increase as opposed to the last elections. And a lot of that population were young people and youth. As we will discuss today, that did not show a commensurate um, appearance of people at the polls on election day. And a lot of the reports from both the presidential and gubernatorial and state and national assembly elections um, seem to have been marred by poor organization, operational failures and other things that we would likely discuss in this podcast. So we're looking into and we're speaking with experts today um, from civil society as well as media um, who have worked in monitoring the elections and also reporting on the elections. And we'll be hearing from them today um, on their own assessment of the 2023 general elections. So can my guests please introduce themselves for the sake of our listeners? Okay, Ibovo Eno is my name, uh, Deputy Director with the Center for Journalism, Innovation and Development and also the head of elections projects in West Africa. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Suleiman Adoga. I'm a senior program officer with Civil Society Legislative Advocacy Center, CISLAC, and I also coordinate uh, programs for the Transition Monitoring Group, TMG. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Nana Hawa Suley. I'm a storyteller and writer. At the time of the elections, I was the lead social media manager for Daily Trust. Currently, I'm the communications person for Liberation Alliance Africa. Nice to be here. Thank you very much, Nana, and welcome again, everyone. So let's kick off the conversation. I'm starting with Solomon on this, um, you know, as your experience leading the transition monitoring group, along with other CSOs, what is your thought on the 2023 general elections in a nutshell? All right. Uh, so this has been, you know, one tough question to answer since, you know, you know the roundoff of the elections. Generally, I think it's a far cry from our expectation as an organization and even as, as people, because a lot of support went into the process to ensure that we had a credible election. Uh, unprecedented amount of money was budgeted for the election. We're talking the region of 350 billion naira on the part of government. INEC received unprecedented level of support from local and you know, foreign partners. I know very well that the European Union has a specific support, which it calls support to INEC. And you cannot imagine the amount of money that went into that to ensure that you know uh, Nigeria you know generally conducts a, a very credible election in 2023. But those expectations were not met. Uh, I don't know if it's because they were too high, uh, but the indicators were there for us to have those expectations. But unfortunately, they were not met at all. So generally, even um, from the point of factual observations, I mean, it's not so much about the outcome. It's not we are not bothered about who emerged, who who won the election. It's the process 
you know, because in the end, it's about uh, entrenching uh, a democratic process. In the end, it's about good governance and you cannot throw in good governance through the back door. It, it doesn't work that way. So we expected to have a very credible process. We supported the process, but in the end, we did not see that happen. And we think from evidence that this outcome was just an outcome of human inter interference. We know that if the process had been allowed to, to play itself out, we would have had a better election, but human interferences here and there thwarted the process in the end. Thank you. Thank you very much, Solomon, for that candid opinion. Would like to hear from Nana on that as well. Okay, um, thank you for your question. I think I agree with uh, Mr. Solomon on a lot of things, but um, I think that we should also, as much as we can point to the errors, the mistakes that were made, we can also um, point to some of the things that did happen that was uh, a win for a country like Nigeria, considering our history. For example, we did good when it came to, you know, not even postponing the presidential elections in the first place, because we saw in 2019 it was, you know, shifted and all those things. Despite the insecurity, the fuel scarcity and, uh, you know, the Naira crunch and so many other concerns, it still held. And to an extent, it was uh, a bit peaceful compared to some other elections that we've had. Um, it's just sad that uh, the turnout that was expected, like Solomon said, our expectations did not come to fruit. Basically, I think we saw citizens' participation actually in the electoral process as a whole, in terms of even trying to get their PVCs and all those things. I don't know why they didn't come out to vote as much, but um, I think we did good. It's left so much more to be expected, but uh, we did good in a way. Thank you. Thank you, Nana. Um, yeah, that's the point of this for diversity of opinions. Um, so, Umboho, it looks like you've been cooking some thoughts. I uh, would also like to hear from you your own thoughts on the general election. Okay, I don't know about the cooking, but uh, my thoughts are pretty simple. The elections left much to be desired uh, in one way. It's just got to a point where we can say that we are welcome to a new dawn in electoral process management. Um, first, the 2022 Electoral Act brought in official technological deployment, and that's one thing we need to appreciate about the 2023 elections. And whatever uh, lapses we noticed, we want to believe there are teething problems. But uh, on the other hand, a lot of hopes have been dashed, given the fact that we had over a year to prepare for this election since when the act was signed into a law. And we also had the opportunity of experimenting and having full effects. What INEC told us in 2019, and while the Electoral Act was being discussed at the National Assembly. They kept saying they were ready. Then we got to the actual thing, and there was a big flop. I think the other thing we also need to understand is that whether INEC likes it or not, they deliberately disenfranchised Nigerians by not deploying materials to the polling units early enough. 
we have reports, of course, we deployed observers to the field, and we have reports that observers will at their polling units as early as five and six o'clock in the morning. But we also have reports that some polling unit did not get their materials until about midday, one o'clock. That led to people going back to their houses. And of course, that answers the question Nana asked, that she doesn't know why people, the turnout was low. People came out in the mornings to vote. INEC officials and materials were not there. People went back to their houses. So it's more of a dashed hope that we had the opportunity to set a golden standard for, for Africa. And then we decided to do what we call the Nigerian thing. And this is very disheartening. In summary, I would say uh, the elections was both a missed opportunity and also a learning curve for us. Thank you very much, Bo. Just like you said, I was thinking about my own experience as well. You know, I, I came out at 7.30. You know, people had already started sharing numbers as it was in most polling units. But INEC hadn't come. I went back home, came back out at 10 o'clock. Um, INEC had still not come. I went back home. And then INEC arrives probably around 11.30. Um, and then, of course, a lot of people went home and, and didn't come back. But I, I guess we'll discuss some of the other reasons why that may have happened. So back to Solomon, um, from the civil society angle, how, how well would you say that civil society did in ensuring transparency and accountability? A lot of claims around shrouded and secrecy around the elections, but how well would you say CSOs did, you know, in monitoring government, keeping them on their toes, ensuring that laws were being obeyed? Um, and what challenges do you think that CSOs faced and what role actually the transition monitoring group played in ensuring this as well? Thank you very much. You know, when I when I talk about so much going into the process, I'm probably talking from the point of our work as an organization and generally the collaborative efforts that we put in as a sector. You know, the pre-election activities, we we knew that we needed to move, we needed to have some paradigm shift, we needed to put certain things in place to uh, account for a credible election. And one of those in itself was, you know, the enactment of the amended uh, Electoral Act. Um, so we put so much into that, uh, knowing that we needed to have some of these provisions, you know, backed by the legality of laws, so to speak. And, and we got that as tedious as it was. If you recall, it looked like the president wasn't going to assent to that bill. And then you can recall the kind of efforts that the civil society, the media, you know, put in to ensure that uh, we kind of pressured the president to sign in the act. So when that act came, it, it, it was, it felt like a new dawn had arrived for Nigeria, that now we had uh, provisions that we were going to guide us into conducting very credible elections. So beyond even the reforms that, that we work toward, you know, so in trying to see how we can even support the process, we deployed. Uh, I, as I speak to you, uh, the Transition Monitoring Group, TMG, deployed observers across the 774 local governments of Nigeria to observe processes. And then when you talk about um, some of the challenges that civil society will have, 
yes, people like to say, you know, funds, funds. Funds is very, very important. There's nothing you can do with that money. I wish that we had all the money in the world. We would have deployed better. Uh, we would have observed better. But even beyond that, we were able to do, you know, what we did. But the challenge still remains in the fact that, I mean, our rules is basically observatory. You observe and you report, and people do whatever they want to do with, with those reports. That is the end of your rule. In, in understanding that you cannot, you cannot even ask an officer to say, no, you are doing the wrong thing. You don't have such power as a civil society. You basically just play observatory rule. But we've played that rule sufficiently. We've educated Nigerians to register and vote. We did our best to mobilize Nigerians to come out and vote. And like Nana said, you saw the surge in registration, in voter registration. You saw enthusiasm in citizens' effort to collect their PVCs, right? So what then happened on the election day? Why did that not reflect? Because for me, in my work, one of the results that I wanted to see was to try to improve, you know, on uh, voter turnout. And I didn't achieve that as painful as it is. I could not achieve that, you know. So it's painful. But then what caused that? And we need to do those kind of, you know, retrospection to see what happened. And like um, Mboha said, a lot of logistical failure happened, especially on February 25th, right? So much. And because we were relying so much on first-hand information from our observers on the field, we saw across the country so much failure on the part of logistics. And this particular INEC was not conducting its first election. It's not the first election that Professor Mahmoud uh, Yakubu was conducting. He conducted the 2019 election. He is supposed to have built on lessons that they learned from 2019, with all the support that they had for 2023 to do a much, much better election in 20. So, we need to assess, yes, maybe it is too early at this point, but we need to come out with the reason why the enthusiasm that citizens had towards the election did not manifest on election day in terms of their turnout. But when you talk of civil society effort, I think that we did the optimal best. That, and even when you gauge the opinion of people in the sector right now, the question is what more can we do? What else should we have done? you know, to contribute to this process. We did our yeah. best. And I, I, I do not even want to think that it is the failure of our efforts. It is not a failure of our effort. We've seen how we deployed this law to have a, a better election in Ocean State. We've seen how we deployed the technology to have a better election in Ocean State. So we are expecting that that will translate to the 2023 election, unfortunately, we are not able to see that. Thank you, Solomon. A lot to reflect on. But Nana would also like to hear uh, from the media perspective, what were some of the challenges that you think media faced in terms of reporting um, and telling stories, capturing content, and how well would you say the media performed overall? Okay, thank you for the question. Uh, we'll draw from lessons learned from Daily Trust. The first thing we did, for example, was collaborate with the CDD and even the CJID. It was important for us to educate, first of all, 
that was pre-elections, educate on the electoral laws, educate on, you know, uh, what even the definition of voter buying is, these terms, electoral terms that people didn't understand, what was considered an offense and what wasn't, you know. I remember we had this um, Twitter space every Friday, and then uh, we had videos being made on YouTube to be shared on other social handles, you know, just engaging the audience and letting them know what was their right uh, during the elections, what would be considered offenses, what is considered safe, and how important it was to, you know, not sell votes. But I feel like Solomon rightly said we were basically observers. Our job there was to go see and then tell the stories that we saw. It wasn't to intervene or, you know, uh, maybe it wasn't activism for us in the media. In fact, we were meant to be nonpartisan as much as possible to, you know, not be invested in a way that um, an ordinary, well, not ordinary, a, a citizen can be. Um, the thing is, however, there were a lot of things that were noticed, especially in terms of uh, logistics. And also, even after the elections itself, uploading the results to the IREV, we tried to follow the results that were being uploaded by INEC. But it wasn't even up to half of the PUs in Nigeria that were uploaded on that system, which in itself is a very big failure on INEC's part. About 53,000 were uploaded out of 176,000 plus PUs. You can imagine the, you know, the difference is very huge. Now you're trying to get credible results to share with your audience, to keep them informed. Whereas every other person is telling you, oh, they got this at my PU, they got that at my PU, and results were flying around. We saw that uh, how much momentum Adamawa gained, for example, in the gubernatorial anyways, but it's something that was obtainable in the presidential. People shared so much, so much misinformation that credible media sources and outlets were actually being questioned as being biased and being partisan. But we had to take that blow because we had to wait. Since we couldn't get results from the IREV, we were waiting at collation centers. It was purely what INEC told us or what we heard from INEC directly that we gave our audience. I would say the failures that we encountered was enabled by INEC because they had a lot of time. They had so much time to put in their best to perfect whatever systems and processes that they needed to perfect before this election. But they did not. So you said that we will have these results in real time as they were uploaded. Why didn't that happen? And now that it didn't happen, who is taking responsibility for that failure? Because Things have gone quiet and the court cases are mostly, you know, this person's party versus this person's party. But I think that an area that media and civil society can explore is to start to hold people, these officials accountable. You know, why didn't this happen? Who was responsible for making sure that this happened? They need to explain to Nigerians because a lot of money, despite the cash crunch, the CBN tried to make cash available for this thing. People left their homes and tried to vote. Even in areas of violence, people still came out and tried to vote. 
but we're discouraged by late coming, by the beavers not working in some places, you know, and it's left a lot to be desired. So I think one area we can explore is um, trying to hold officials accountable, at least to serve as a deterrent for the future, you know. And then uh, I don't know how we're going to tackle misinformation because that's a big challenge that I think everyone is facing. So I guess I'll throw it back to Ida Solomon what they think that we can do to tackle misinformation because you're here trying to give out credible results and then results are flying around. So what do we do? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Nana. Really, <laughs> this kind of reflections that are happening on this call are reflections that should be happening, you know, all over in pockets of, of organizations that were involved in this process because they would help to improve the process in the future. So, Mboho, I think um, Nana's opened the door into misinformation. And we're also trying to see, you know, from campaign season to elections proper, again, widespread misinformation. And we're trying to say, you know, why do we think this is? And, you know, how can media and even CSUs ensure that accurate information is being communicated to the public? And what's also your opinion on, you know, the use of technology during these elections? Was it effective in preventing malpractices? And then if you still feel like touching on the challenges, you can go ahead as well. Thank you. Let me start from when Anna stopped. Uh, <laughs> what can we do about misinformation? I, I think so far, I would say we're tackling it to the best of our ability as CSOs and as the media. Uh, at some point, maybe we need to upgrade to, everybody's talking AI now, maybe we need to upgrade to AI. Uh, but at the level of humans, I think we are doing our best. Um, Dubawa, a project of the uh, Center for Journalism and Innovation and Development, uh, one of the I think the foremost uh, indigenous fact-checking platform in Nigeria did a lot of explainers prior to the elections, active fact-checking while the elections was ongoing. Post-elections, we engaging also uh, in the war against misinformation and disinformation. Um, during these 2023 elections, we went a step further. I think fact-checkers in Nigeria went a step further by forming the Nigerian Fact-Checkers Coalition. Uh, so they did all they could to pull resources together to battle these concepts as they were springing up all through the elections. Don't forget they were there through all the primary uh, debates that were being done. It didn't matter which faction was, <laughs> was holding, which uh, organization was hosting. I mean, they were there, they showed how non-partisan they were in being present and available to work with everyone that uh, deemed it fit to serve the Nigerian people. But why do we keep having misinformation being churned out on a daily basis? Of course, that's, that's the job of politicians. I think Nigeria has not gotten into a point where we are very sincere with our discussing policies rather than through propagandas. I know the next person would say even uh, in the US there are propagandas that are being thrown, there are misinformation that are being churned out. But I, I think um, it's just the natural instinct of politicians to just cause a little rattling. Yeah, to them, it's part of the game. But in the larger ecosystem, it's discrediting the entire process. I mean, in the elections so far, we see that when they've 
a process gets to the point of counting and results released, that's when we notice a huge spike in the volume of uh, misinformation that comes out because everybody wants to claim victory. And when their result is not favoring your candidate, it comes like, oh, INEC or uh, the ad hoc staff are working in collaboration with opponents and all of that. So I think it's just for us to be able to stem the tide of misinformation is for us to get back to political parties and tell them, hey, you guys need to play by the rules. We need to get to the point where we can begin to find political actors when they throw these propagandas. We need to get to a point where we can, as Nana said, hold people responsible, individuals. So if my party, for example, Patimbo, decides to throw a propaganda using one of my supporters, someone, either the supporter or the party, should be held liable for such. That's the only way we can begin to cut this, uh, reduce the tide in misinformation. And don't also forget that government also trades in misinformation a lot. Some of this misinformation actually come out from government themselves. To what end, I may not be able to answer, but I think they are the chief propagandists in terms of peddling misinformation and disinformation. So let me quickly jump to technological use. For the first time, officially, technological deployment being acknowledged because uh, before now, we've been experiencing the gradual introduction of technology from the 2010 Act. That's when we got here, I think, the direct data capturing process in 2011. We got the card reader, smart card reader in 2015. And then we upgraded to using the BVAS and the IRF. So we have consistently improved in our technological uh, deployment. And this election, I am of the opinion, was able to actually bring out the actual number of voters that come out to vote in Nigerian elections. Don't forget before now, we've always had incident forms. So even if you don't come, incident form will be filled for you. And that adds up to the number. Incident form for this election was totally cancelled. So if we said that we had 27 million people that voted, then we can actually say in reality 27 million people voted. And the clause in the electoral act that uh, acknowledges um, overvoting did not say overvoting is total number of people registered in a polling unit. That clause has changed to total number of people that collected PVC and then that got accredited in the fact that we are relying on a machine and a technology that has proven to be reliable, being the beavers for accreditation. So if the total number of people accredited is um, lower than the number of votes count at the end of the day, then we can say this over voting. But I mean, these technologies, I would say, uh, good for the elections. They are good advancements in our t- electoral process. We only beg and plead with the guys managing the affairs of the election. Allow the system to work. It doesn't make practical sense that the same machine that was used to transmit National Assembly election results is not able to transmit presidential results. It doesn't make any technological sense. I mean, what are you going to explain? It's the same machine. So the same elections, the same day, the same set of humans that are uploading, are interfacing with this 
technology are the same people. So why should we have a National Assembly elections that is smooth, uploaded in real time, and then it comes to presidency? I mean, you, you tell us there's no code. So we have gotten to the point where we need to consciously reduce the level of human interference in our, in our electoral process. And that is going to build more trust and more confidence. How did we even get to the point where we have so many people going out to register for their PVC in the first place? Remember Ekiti, when the Beavers and IRF was fully deployed post the 2022 Electoral Act sign, uh, signing, the turnout in Ekiti wasn't that good. But the trust and the confidence of the people was built because they saw how the Beavers and the IRF was transparent. We got to Oshun, we had a slightly higher turnout. And it turned out to also be good. I mean, it was reliable. The confidence of citizens was being, was being built. That was also used in other elections that occurred within the year. And then suddenly we get to the, pres- I mean, to the general elections. Every, everything seems to be turned upside down. It's just human interference that is leading to the eroding of trust in the electoral process. So it's like we are going a mile ahead and then we decide to take two miles back. For civil society and the media that have consistently engaged in trust building on behalf of the electoral umpire, it means we have to start go back to square one and start building the level of confidence again. That's a huge task. That's a huge task. And just as Nana said, we need to get the people involved in this coup, because this is coup against the people by the electoral empire. We need to punish the people that led this coup. Thank you. The key thing, you know, that you said, allow the system to work. And I think that's what majority of Nigeria's youth have clamored for before the elections, during and even after. Just you've put some good systems in place. Let the systems do what, what you've put them in place to do. So what lessons have we learned? We did all this observation. What are some key lessons that we've learned that will be relevant to like INEC or non-state actors, um, international community to consider for future elections? And, you know, what can CSOs do to improve transparency in this electoral process in the next elections? Um, Thank you very much. I don't think we should miss some of the things that these two speakers have talked about. Nana raised the flip side of these elections, especially around the results, right? And that was as a result of INEX failure to deploy technology efficiently. Now, one of the things that we did not see was this fake results flying about, especially in social media. And why was that? Because INEC fully deployed IREF. And because INEC fully deployed IREF, it accorded civil society organizations, the media, to collaborate together. I recall that Yaga Africa and um, Channels Television ran a program, and they were relying on results from IREF. So they deployed people to aggregate polling unit results in real time, and they were broadcasting on national television. People from social media were also feeding from there. So you were getting credible results. So that is how well we could have used IREF in the 2023 uh, general election. And it was so painful that organizations like us actually deployed data clerks 
to try to interact with, uh, with the Harry Potter, and it now looked like it was just effort in futility. We deployed in vain in that regard. Mbo has spoken so much about human interference. So we saw technology work to the extent that they were allowed to work, just to the extent that they were allowed to function. Otherwise, how would you explain the same machine transmitting election results for parliamentary elections and not for the presidential election? So in terms of lessons learned, and I must stay on course with Nana's submission, which Mbuhu also concurs with. We need to arrest these people who are hijacking the process. Clearly, there are people who are determined to hijack the process. And when they are allowed to hijack the process, no matter the reforms, it will not come to fruition. You will not harvest your results. So we need to be able to, at this point in time, I don't know how we'll do it. I don't know if it is a function of the civil society, because even the civil society at this very point is disillusioned. But then, this may be what the politicians want. The mind of the politician is completely different from how you and I would think. They are very disruptive in their thinking, so far as it deals to their interests. And we've seen this. We are even continuing to see this post-election. So we cannot allow these guys. And in terms of how we can curb this misinformation for civil society, I don't think there's any other way to go than expand on the fact-checking efforts that were put on ground, like Mboho mentioned. There's no other way. So we need to expand on this. We need to bring in more organizations to do fact-check because the politicians will always misinform people. They control the media space. They are the ones who own media houses. Even the social media that you would think is a free-for-all. They are now deploying so-called influencers to do their bidding. So they are hijacking everywhere. And we must not allow this hijack to continue. For now, INEC has asked everybody to go to court. Uh, whether the commission had the right to jettison the process of transmitting results electronically, to relying solely on manual collation of results, we are going to find out from judicial interpretation. But basically, civil society must stay action. We must stay on course. Uh, this is now time for us to even put more effort on ground. If we need to do more reforms, we need to get them done. Because no matter what the outcome of that interpretation will be, the way forward will be that you must transmit results electronically, even if you want to do manual transmission as well. Because the whole concept of technology is to remove as much as possible human interference from the process. So civil society will must stay on course and we must continue to campaign. When the time is right, I know that at this point everybody is trying to heal from the outcome of that election. But when the time is right, I think we all need to go back again, uh, strengthen our campaign, We've seen the gaps. We might need to go back, do some kind of reforms, look at our law, all right, to see where the politicians are digging loopholes, you know, to do some of the things that are doing to see that we block those, those loopholes. Thank you very much, Solomon. Um, thank you for that submission. I'll go back to Nana for this. What other lessons do you think actors and non-state actors as well? And what can, you know, the media do to improve this transparency in the coming elections? 
Okay, um, thank you for the question. Actually, I was a bit worried, or not just a bit, I'm actually quite alarmed by the level of misinformation, especially on social media. You see, um, every reputable radio house or mm. television or newspaper will sit down and make sure that their stories check, you know. We even have a responsibility as a journalist, even if someone says this person does A, even if it's a crime, you're supposed to reach out to A and find out from A what happened. You know, you're supposed to get your facts right, no matter what. But then you see social media is uh, no man's land, really. Nobody holds you accountable. Every random person can just wake up and be like, you know what? I'm going to put this out for whatever reasons, you know, for whatever the thought process is. We saw the video of Peter Obi campaigning for Atiku from way back in 2019. It surfaced just around the election corner, the voice note on Atiku. Most recently, also the leaked voice note of um, Peter Obi and the whole Yes Daddy saga. The issue is I am very worried as regards what this means for our privacy as citizens in this country, because if people can have so much access, whether for propaganda or for whatever, to personal conversations, to closed door meetings and all those kind of things, what does it say for our privacy laws? So it's quite alarming. Are they going to maybe this conversation, cut it into pieces and then put it together and upload it, you know, so much to think about. I think we have to sit down and um, confront what kind of future we want as citizens, as Nigerians, as a country, as a whole. Because the thing is, we are very divided, no matter how much we do not want to um, say that we are. We are divided along the lines of ethnicity, along the lines of religion, and these are um, division lines that the politicians capitalize on and help us create chaos that, you know, makes systems go bad in, in a sense. Um, but I don't think, like I said in the very beginning, that everything is negative, negative, negative. I think that, um, like uh, Bobo said, you know, perhaps this is the elections where Nigerians actually voted. Because you can see, for example, in Lagos, it will be one in Lagos, in, dare I say, Tinubu's Lagos, in Buhari's Kasina, uh, Atiku one, you get in, in the government house, Erufai's, you know, will I say his his palace, he lost. He lost the APC ticket. So these are things that let you know that the system can work if it's given a chance to. And perhaps this is the one time that Nigerians actually actively participated in the elections. And it makes you, it makes us have hope for the future, you know. It means that, I'm not sure if it's Solomon or Umboho who said it, there's an awakening that has happened with Nigerians. There's that interest in who's leading us, in kicking out who has done bad and, you know, putting someone who, ha who they hope will do well as uh, media persons or civil society persons. We're not particular about who wins or who doesn't win. We're just saying that let us have a process that works, put in place systems that work, and INEC should take a lot of lessons from now. I, if, if, if they need to get consultants, if they need to, I don't know, revamp the whole system they have, they have to dismantle what they have and look at how they have done in the past 
and what they can do for the next elections. They have to sit down, you know, and figure out. IRF didn't work well. Even the beavers didn't work in some places. How can we ensure that this doesn't happen again? There were still cases of vote buying, still people who even showed their uh, ballot paper, displayed it. How do we educate people that this is wrong, this is right, this is what to do, this is what not to do, you know? And perhaps all we can do is to start uh, putting pressure earlier on because it feels like they just sit down and then maybe some six months or three months to elections, then they decide, oh, let's rush through this whole process. Right now, maybe when they are done with the court cases through this year, they have next year and two, three more years to plan effectively, which still boils down to us having punitive measures in place for electoral officials who do not do their jobs. We need to stop approaching it like uh, it's a thing that is forgivable. You know, it's not like someone went to steal or something from another individual. No, no, you're robbing Nigerians of their rights. Then you need to explain why. And you need to be punished for your part or your inactions or your actions in it. So these are some of the lessons that we can learn. But with regards to social media, I don't know, <laughs> especially with in terms of misinformation. I really don't know how, because um, on one side, we have to agree that um, people have a freedom to um, express themselves on this platform. But I guess now it's trying to find balance and how to ensure that they use social media responsibly, that Nigerians use social media responsibly. But I, I think Nigeria is on a, a good path. And I think that um, more Nigerians are interested in the electoral process. And that's a very good thing. If, if for nothing, just having this, it's a very good thing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nana. Like you said, um, Stop Nigeria worked with first-time voters in Nassau and Lagos um, over the election, sensitization, um, education, and ensuring people actually you know, act with integrity and what you said at the end is really what it is, ensuring that people know that their their, their voices matter, but also trying to create uh, um, that balance of information. Finally, to Mboho, um, yeah, just your quick thoughts on any lessons that can be learned and recommendations for, you know, CSOs, media, INEC, um, and what can be improved ahead of the next elections. I think I want to start with the fact that since we started this conversation, we seem to we focused on the February 25th elections and then we forget that there was a March 18th election that, I mean, honestly, if that was election, and then I wonder what war is uh, in some part of the nation. The March 18th election was literally the war and that's not how an election should run. So during the presidential election, we were commending security, commending um, yeah, the security actors, especially for being civil. And then we got into the March 18th election and the same guys we were commanding on the 25th of February became like tyrants. This is not how an election should run. Our press attack tracker recorded about 35 attacks on journalists. That's a huge number for an election. We deployed observers. I mean, I have observers that we had to get someone 
had to pull our network to go and extract from the field and rush to the hospitals. We had observers like that. We had cases in Aquibum. We had a case in Ambia where the observer was practically kind of kidnapped by a political actor. The one in Kogi was thrown outside of a moving car, having caught a so-called distinguished honorable member of the Federal House of Representatives sharing money and the so-called honorable member in Kogi State wasn't happy that he was caught on camera sharing money. So practically held the guy hostage in his car and was driving him around from polling unit to polling unit, still sharing money. Seized his phone, broke his phone, and before breaking the phone, formatted his phone. So we don't have that evidence. But what we have is that he was threatened to be killed. Only that one of the other leads of the, he says he's a police officer, had to appeal to his principal, let's just drop off this guy. And of course, he was thrown out of the moving car. We had to get someone to go take him to the hospital. If civil society observers who are harmless and journalists who do not have any weapon get into a situation where their only responsibility is just to look and speak, they are not allowed to do anything, can get into this level of harassment and assault. I think we need to review the models operandi for our security operatives on election day. I know the law says no politician should move around with his orderly, but we have a case in our in Kogi State, and surprisingly, uh, the honourable member had lost his re-election bid on 25th. So I think it's part of the annoyance that okay, you guys did this, okay, so uh, the, I'll deal with you guys. So he decided to vent his anger on an innocent observer. And let's not even talk about what happened in Lagos. I mean, Lagos has been overflogged. That's why I'm bringing examples from other states that we seem to have forgotten. There was a lot of, there were a lot of assaults and harassment on journalists. We had a case also of one of our observers who was accosted by DSS in Lagos. And the evidence of vote buying and all of that was deleted from his phone by the SSS officer. Let's call them the name that is recognized by law. So we had cases like that. We had cases in, uh, in Edo. And we had, don't forget, there was a House of Assembly elections in Edo, but it was worse than a governorship election. So we, have, we had cases like this. So one thing we need to do is that for journalists and observers, for civil society and media houses, we need to, at some point, begin to review the safety of our men and women on the field. and. I don't know. I don't think just insurance is enough for them. But we also need to begin to get to the point where we have concrete evidence, evidence like names, organizations, faces of perpetrators. We need to begin to sue these people and these institutions. I think when we get to that point, we can begin to see some civility in their, on their own part. If we're not just state actors that were fomenting this trouble. There were non-state actors. One of the guys in Aquilon that was speaking was actually by non-state actors, but in the presence of police. So we need to begin to talk to ourselves. It's an election. It's not war. Yes, your candidate must win. In every election, there must be winners and there must be losers. We need to get, come to the point as Nigerians of accepting both sides of divide. 
And the constitution also understands that there will be winners and there will be losers, there will be aggrieved and there will be uh, those that are happy. There's a provision for addressing grievances. Let's explore that. We need to have that a reprogramming of our mind to see that the harm we're causing can at some point come back and affect us. So that's one thing I also wanted to bring up so that we can probably maybe in another episode talk about the pains of the guys we sent on the field, the guys we sent on the field to cover as journalists and as observers the elections. A lot of things happen to them. A lot of experiences they have to share. But because we just see them, oh, their own role is simple, just to look and report. But in the process, they're getting attacked. They're getting assaulted. They're getting manhandled and all of that. So what's my recommendation going forward? I think, first, the recruitment process for an annex chairman and the resident electoral commissioners needs to be We have a crop of resident electoral commissioners presently who were known and are known to be partisan, which is against the rules of engagement and the law setting up INEC. Anyone that should be appointed into this position should be non-partisan. But we have card-carrying members of political parties occupying these offices. You cannot totally blame an INEC chairman who has refused to obey the rules because he was appointed by someone who also has the powers to remove him. So maybe we need to review the process of appointment of INEC chairman. And then these resident electoral commissioners, by law, we are appointed by the president, not by the chairman. So they cannot be responsible to the chairman. The chairman can't remove them because he didn't appoint them. So maybe we need to look at the recruitment process again and see how we can tweak that to make INEC more independent in terms of recruitment, in terms of resources. Yes, the new electoral act has made some provisions for resource uh, availability and our provisions and all of that. And we also need to have a post-mortem for every election and where faults are found, where officials are found guilty. We keep saying punished. They should be punished. The problem with Nigeria is not a lack of law or rules. The problem with Nigeria is that we don't have punitive measures. We rather reward people that err with accolades. And then we deride people that are truthful, which shouldn't be the case in a sane society. So we need to apportion the blames accordingly. And then we also need to show good examples of good returning officers, good resident electoral commissioners. That woman in Abia, that's a good example of a returning officer who insists on following the rules. We need to celebrate such people. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you. Um, I, I would like, if we can, just one minute each, um, because a lot of our first-time voters who we spoke to after the elections are almost demoralized and have sworn, you know, that they will never vote again in another election because their votes didn't count. What would you say in, in one minute to, you know, first-time voters and Nigerians in general, where do we go from here? And what's your encouragement for people? So let's start with Nana. I'd say to not lose faith. I don't want to sound like Martin Luther King, but I do have a dream <laughs> that uh, Nigeria is going to be a great country, at least greater than 
where we are now. But I think that collectively we have to stop looking at Nigeria like an inheritance, like something we've inherited from our forefathers that we can do it however we want. We have to look at it, you know, as something we're going to leave for our children, for the next generation. And when you put that into perspective, whether you're a politician or you're a cobbler, whoever you are, when you put that into perspective, I think it will help us, you know, go back and rethink what are we doing in the next 10, 20, 50 years? Are our children going to be proud of this country? Are they going to want to stay in this country? You know, we have a lot of work to do. Right now, yes, I know tensions are high. People are angry and feel they have been mistreated, feel that things have gone poorly. But we have to find a way to channel all that into preparing for the future. And we can't do that if we keep fighting ourselves. So we have to stop with the throwing of attacks between the North, the South, Christians, Muslims, and all that. We have to come together because like they say, you know, the popular African proverb, if you want to break a broom, you have to, you can break them in, you know, strands, but together you can't break them. We really have to come together. Lugar has put us together. It has happened. So Let's just try to make the best of it so far now. So I think that's that's what I'm going to say to um, first-time voters and to Nigerians as a whole. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lana. Um, let's get your final words, Solomon. Yeah, I mean, in the same line, um, quite understandably, uh, citizens are disillusioned at the moment. And for us, um, as people who educate citizens, we, we need to sit back now and redesign the language that that we have to speak to citizens to you know reawaken them again because we cannot communicate in the same language that we did in time past um, the environment is totally different now and we have to uh, re-strategize in terms of communication with citizens to you know, get them to believe again and so one thing that i, I like um, hearing, which I've been hearing from the president-elect, is the fact that he understands that we need to rebuild a nation. And so if he comes in and, and takes that on board, uh, it will be one which will be very much appreciated because Nigeria needs a rebuilding at this point in time. If he helps us to do that, we can have a voice to uh, convince citizens again to believe in the system. But at the moment, we need to find the right language to speak to citizens. Thank you very much, Solomon. And final words from Mbohu. So 2023 was my first time voting. I woke up and got to the polling unit as early as six. By nine o'clock, INEC had not arrived. So I went to work. I came back by about one o'clock and I stayed on queue. And I was finally able to vote about 4.33 p.m. That was my experience as a first-timer. So what would I say on to other first-time voters? We have to re-energize, we have to reboot, we have to go back and join the queue and continue voting. Don't be dismayed about uh, what, whatever happened or whatever is happening now. I think it's just the, it's the right thing that is happening. The players know that the game is changing or the game has changed. can only get better. And just like Liverpool will say, you never walk alone. So 
the Nigerians, you are not working alone. Let's work on this together as a united country and see to it that every election you participate in a non-violent way. That's very important. And also speak up for the people that are being harassed, manhandled, and uh, rough-handled during the electoral process. They need your voices to stay active on the field, especially the people who are representing you to watch how the process is going. The players don't want them on the field. So you have to be a voice for them, for them to continue to serve you better. I joined Nana to say, I have a dream of a better Nigeria. Don't forget that in this country, we never walk alone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mboho. Thank you, Nana. Thank you, Solomon, so much for your time. Um, it was really an enjoyable conversation. You can also just quickly um, kindly share like your social media handle so that our listeners can follow you later. So let's start with Nana again. Social media um, platforms, I am at Izesule. I-Z-E. Please follow Daily Trust. Though I'm no longer with them, but uh, they did a really beautiful job. They are Daily Trust, Daily Underscroll Trust across all social media platforms. And follow my current organization. We have a lot of things in store for you. Uh, we're at Liberation AA across all social media handle. Um, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Anna. Uh, Solomon, please. Okay, uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Solman. Soulman is S-O-U-L-M-A-N. Uh, then you can also follow Syslab. Syslab is at Syslab Nigeria on Twitter. And you can follow at T-M-G-N-G on Twitter as well. Thank you. Thank you, Solomon. Mboho, please. Okay, you can follow me at Twitter at Mboho. That's together E-N-O-M-B-O-H-O. And you can follow CJID at CJID Africa. Thank you. Thank you all so much for your time and our listeners. Remember to follow Step Up Nigeria on Instagram and Twitter at step underscore up underscore Nigeria. And you can also follow Step Up Nigeria on LinkedIn, on TikTok um, at Step Up Nigeria. And this podcast will air on YouTube at Step Up TV, as well as on all podcasting platforms. Please let us know your thoughts. Um, let's engage in the conversation. You've heard their social media handles. Tag them as you have comments or thoughts on the things and the issues discussed here today. A big thank you again to my guests, Nana Sule, Solomon Adoga, and Boho Eno for your time and for your contributions on this. Thank you. Thank you.